Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thanks for joining us today. We're planning on 2020 being a big year for the podcast, so if you like the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast service you use, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. And if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a five-star review. It does aid in the visibility of the show, helps us grow the podcast, and make more new episodes for you. And now on to the show. Joining me today on the podcast is a writer and narrative designer for such video games as Destiny 2, Telltale Games' The Walking Dead, and Minecraft Story Mode. Before his ascent in the world of video gaming, he worked in the writer's rooms and in production on shows like Eureka and Da Vinci's Demons, and co-produced the superhero comedy Caper for Geek and Sundry. He is Adam, not on Twitter, Miller. Thanks for joining us, Adam. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, Kevin. How so, you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad you could break away from Twitter for a few minutes to join us on the podcast. Yeah, it was tough, but, you know, uh, I did what I had to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 2020, it's a new year. Uh, what are your New yeah. Year's resolutions, if you have any? Oh, man. You know what? This was like one of the first years where I just said, <laughs> I'm not going to follow through with New Year's resolutions anyway. <laughs> so um, I, I, I didn't really make any. But... Um, you know, I don't know. 2019 was actually a pretty decent year for me. So I didn't feel going into 2020 like I needed any major New Year's resolutions. Although I would like to lose a little bit of weight. So <laughs> that, that'll be a thing. But generally, yeah, that's a really unique resolution. Right. But generally, it's not broken. Nothing to fix. Right. Things are going well. Keep it and, going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, things will just naturally break themselves eventually. So <laughs> we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll make a resolution when I need it. Right. <laughs> Now, we yeah. met a few years ago when you were working in film and TV um, for Amy yeah. Berg, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit, but I, I definitely wanted to sort of go back to the beginning. As a writer, sure. what are sort of your first memories finding yourself writing and, and telling stories and enjoying that process? You know, it, it, it's funny, and I apologize for being a little long-winded here in advance, um, but it's funny... Uh, when I actually started pursuing film um, seriously, uh -huh. uh, I, it, it wasn't until I was in college. And at that time, I remember thinking like, well, I really haven't done anything to prep for this up to this point. But as I moved through life and really, you know, thought back on my earlier life, like there were a million things I did. I, I used to make movies with friends all the time. Um, I, I asked my parents for video cameras. Um, I was super into photography, um, and I used that to tell stories. Um, I used to write comics, uh, you know, stupid little uh, wrote and drew comics in my spare time um, as a kid. Uh, you know, so I look back on all this stuff, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I actually, uh, it, the signs were definitely there uh, for me, but um, it, it really wasn't until I kind of, uh, you know, dove into it in in school that uh it really clicked for me um but i did grow up with a, a, a very hefty love of television mm -hmm. um especially in in um high school i was a big big fan of like shows like 24 and uh ally mcbeal and right. other shows just really kind of like hit me in these ways in which i remember feeling super strongly about wanting to do that like wanting to wanting to affect people emotionally and um, in, in the same ways that I was being affected by these things that I was seeing. Uh, and I didn't, it, it's a very weird way to explain this, but I didn't know I wanted to like, 
do it, do it. I just knew I wanted to make people feel that way. I didn't know how in the world to make that a reality. Um, and I spent a lot of time in high school uh, being really good at math and science. Uh, and so, you know, it's a funny little anecdote that I have for the day I really realized that maybe I could do something like this mm-hmm. was um, I, I dated this, uh, this woman in, in, well, this girl in high school. Um, she was my high school sweetheart. And she was super, she wanted to be creative and she wanted to be an actress and all of these things. And she wanted to take an AP English class. And to do that, she had to take a test. And I remember her talking to me about it and me going, you know, I've never taken an AP class. My grades have never been particularly good in school. But I wonder if I took this test, if I'd get into the AP class. And so I told her I was going to do it, too. She said, great. And we went and did it together. And I remember it was the most boring thing. It was (laughs) they gave us. Yeah, they gave us two poems about trees, both about trees. And they asked us to write a quick little essay on it. And I did it in about 20 minutes. And I left. She stayed the whole hour. Um, and then we got our results. And I got in. And she didn't. <laughs> and I, remember thinking, <laughs> I remember thinking, what? Like, I understand, like, people's creative mediums in a way I didn't really realize that I understood it. And I started thinking, well, if I understand it that well, maybe I can uh, start exploring my own, you know, creativity. Um, and I ended up in that AP English class and I ended up doing well in it. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up leaving high school, having made a bunch of films with friends and doing all that stuff. And then going, I think I want to be in film <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and TV and, um, you know, jumping into, into college, I still, still went into college going, I don't know what exactly I want to do yet, but I know I'm leaning towards that. And, uh, and then it wasn't until I finally just said, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. That I really started hunkering down and getting really uh, creative in in my work and such. So that's that's sort of how I got to that point. And and speaking of the entertainment industry, film and TV, again, we met at some screenwriting conference or something where we were interviewing (laughs) Amy Berg, who you were working for at the time. Uh, I think it was 2015 or 16. Uh, I think you guys were working on Da Vinci's Demons, I, I think. Something would have like been that. would have been 2013, I believe. Okay. It might have been yeah. near the end of that run or something like that. I, I, I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, can you yeah, talk a yeah. little bit about what your experience was like working in TV? And in, since now you work in video games, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but what was your experience like working in television? And how did you end up there from college uh, from your AP English class, how did you end up working sure. in television? Sure. So, um, as with all good Hollywood stories, um, <laughs> the you know nepotism nepotism is never too far away. Sure. Um, my uh, my, I was one of the few people in in film and television. I remember, you know, people would always do that thing that you see on TV shows and stuff. When people are like, "Where are you from? Where are you from?" And it's like, you know, everybody's from different places working right. in Hollywood. And I was always from L.A. and people would go, where are you from? And I'm, I'm from L.A. And they'd go, what? That doesn't make any sense. Um, my my dad uh, has been working in film uh, and television forever and ever and ever. He's people know who he is. 
um, but on the post-production side of things, my dad's run editorial studios and mm. visual effects studios and all sorts of stuff. Um, really awesome person and super successful in the industry. And uh, he, uh, it, actually not the only person in my family who's in the industry. My brother um, works at Paramount and also in, on the post side of things. And then uh, a cousin of mine as well um, works in the industry. But uh, I was sort of determined to not utilize them uh, to get in. I, I really didn't want to be pegged, you know, with the nepotism thing um, at the time. I sort of own it now because I think a lot about people who, you know, like it, that was a way I got in. And that's sure. like, I can't, I can't really hide that necessarily. And I don't, I don't think I should hide that people who have the ability to do that should do that. Um, and then, you know, I'm a, a super big advocate for um, also trying to just reach out and help people and provide them with guidance who don't have those, um, uh, those avenues as well. But uh, my, uh, my father knew um, a man named Richard Winnie and Richard Winnie is now, I believe the VP of post-production at NBC universal, mm -hmm. I think has been for years. Um, but at the time uh, Richard was, I don't think he was in that position yet. And, but he's still on the post side of things. And they had an interview open for basically an administrative assistant um, over at NBC Universal's post department. And um, I went in and I interviewed, and I remember at the end, end of the interview, um, Richard going, uh, you know, you don't want to work here. <laughs> and <laughs> me going, well, you know, it's been, uh, it's been six months since I graduated school. I'd love to have a job, you know, and, and him going, no, 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 you don't want to work here. You want to work on an actual TV show. Like, because this is, this is NBC Universal's post department. We, you know, we support the TV shows, but we do not, we are not directly on the shows themselves. And he's like, and you want that because I can tell you want to be creative. And I was like, yeah, I mean, ideally that would be great. Um, and he was able to actually hook me up with uh, a couple of post-production producers, um, a guy named Steve Welke and uh, a guy named Robbie Gami. And the two of them were um, running post over for uh, Eureka at the time. Hmm. And um, they reached out to me um, probably, I don't really remember the timeline on this, but it was not that long after I met with, uh, with Richard and <clears throat> they reached out to me and I remember going to interview with them at a Starbucks and I was wearing a sweater and I felt particularly chubby and <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it was, a, it was the whole day. And I, uh, I remember going and meeting with them and talking to them for like an hour and we hit it off. And uh, Steve actually had known my dad from years prior. They'd both worked um, in different parts of uh, Star Trek Voyager, I believe. Hmm. Um, and so uh, they, we talked for a little bit and, uh, and then they, they hired me um, and they hired me as a post-production PA. Uh, and I, it, this was not technically my first job in the industry. I also did um, a very short stint as a, kind of temp post PA on a lifetime movie in, in the December, in December of 2009 called Amish Grace. That was an interesting film. Uh, but I worked on that for about a month and a half and I met my future writing partner there. Uh, and one of my best friends actually. Oh, cool. uh, but yeah, we, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we, I ended up on Eureka with these guys post PA, you know, 
as if thinking like every young uh, entrance into the industry thought at the time, which is like, oh, I'm hot shit and I got a cool job working as a post PA and this is awesome and I'm in the film industry now, you know, and thought a lot of myself <laughs> at the time. Um, and so I, I started working on that show and, um, that, uh, that was, what does that end up being? I think that ended up being about two years, maybe a little over two years on two and a half years, I think on Eureka and uh, also the sci-fi show alphas mm -hmm. that was on for a little bit. Um, because on Eureka, we got canceled by sci-fi, uh, or sorry, we got canceled by NBC universal who put pressure on sci-fi cancel Eureka even though Eureka was sci-fi's top show at the time um, because it was five seasons in and cost them more money than any other show they had at the time uh, and I remember yeah I remember hearing that NBC Universal thought well why don't we just cancel all of our like big shows and start over with all new actors and new sets and all this stuff and pay a lot less money right um, and so they canceled us and then they unfortunately fortunately let go a significant amount of people from the alphas crew and replaced them with a bunch of us from the eureka crew um <clears throat> and uh the showrunner actually fun little tidbit um a lot of my coworkers, a lot of the people in those writers rooms and uh, my showrunner at the time on both uh eureka and alphas um was a man named bruce miller who if that name sounds familiar is because Bruce Miller is the showrunner on Handmaid's Tale. Hmm. Um, and a lot of the writers from Eureka uh, have gone on to work on Handmaid's Tale with Bruce, including um, Bruce's ex-assistant, not, yeah, I guess ex-assistant um, at the time, who was coming up with me, um, a woman named Lynn Maxey, who I'm just giving a little shout out to because she's incredible. Um, <laughs> but all of these people went over there and ended up writing this show, which is phenomenal. Um, and... I, you know, it was really cool to have gotten to work with, uh, with those people at the time. Um, but I, I learned a lot on Eureka and Alphas, um, about being in the industry and about, um, you know, chilling out a little bit and realizing that I didn't actually know nearly as much as I thought I did. Um, and I, I am one of those people who will say I learned way more working in TV than I ever did. Um, taking film and TV classes in college, sure, uh, which is you know unfortunate, but um, it sort of is what it is. Uh, and yeah, I, I did that. You know, I, I did those two shows, um, and I moved up in the ranks on those shows. And eventually, I, I hit a point where um, I knew that they weren't going to keep bumping me up um, in title, and I was a little, a little not. I wouldn't call it sneaky. I'd, I'd call it clever. Um, where I knew I wanted title bumps and I knew that they weren't going to give me pay bumps with them. And so I was very clear to them, like, Hey, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing a PA job, but I'm also doing a, a coordinator job and I'd really like the coordinator title. And, you know, they'd go, okay, we'll give you the coordinator title. And all the while my plan was, Hey, I'll, I'll keep bumping up titles. And then eventually I'll just go get a job somewhere else with that title. And then they'll start paying me the money that I actually want. Right. Um, and that actually, that actually came to fruition um, when I realized that I didn't really have much further to go with that team uh, and Alphas was clearly coming to an end and was probably not going to keep going. Um, 
<laughs> I, uh, I sort of made a little bit of a jump um, over as a post supervisor onto an NBC show called um, Deception. And that ran for one season. It was a murder mystery show. Um, and, you know, it was, it was fine, but there was a reason why it only ran for one season. And, uh, and I did that. And in the middle of that show, I um, found out that I had a heart condition. And I had no idea that I had had this heart condition, but I'd apparently had it my whole life. Um, and <clears throat> it kind of kicked me into gear and made me look around. And I remember I was working in the uh, basement floor of Sunset Gower Studios. Um, and I was in an office of my own. Hmm. I had my own office with, you know, my own, my own art on the walls and everything. But it was in a basement, no windows. It was very cold. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this sucks. <laughs> I don't like post-production. And I love the people, but I didn't, it wasn't, it just wasn't where my heart was. Um, and I had thought about post-production as a, as a sort of foot in the door. And then, um, you know, I'd stayed in it longer than I think I ever intended to. And I said, uh, you know, I, I, I need to, I need to do something. And, and it wasn't that I hadn't been doing things up to that point. You know, I'd been writing um, scripts with my writing partner and uh, uh, I had been um, sort of noticed by one of the directors on Alphas um, who really wanted to really liked my style and my creativity and saw some of the work I did and really wanted to mentor me and, and take me under his wing. And, and, um, you know, there were, there were a few different things that were going on for me, but I just felt like these were things I was waiting for, you know, and they weren't things that I was actively like pushing forward on. <clears throat> like I, you know, I was writing scripts, but I wasn't doing anything with them, you know, and I was waiting for this director to like, you know, do something for me and just all this waiting. And I said, you know what, screw it. Like I, I gotta just start going for stuff. And and I'll say this, I'll put this out there just for like, you know, a little, little pre bit of advice for anybody who is in that position now, or may have been in that position or maybe in that position in the future. Um, you know, I, I was still really new to the industry um, and I didn't know, even, even when I was in it, I didn't know how to move around in it. You know, like it, it wasn't like I had this clear image of, you know, I'm just sitting in post-production, but I could just go get a job in a writer's room. It's not easy to do that. Uh, right. And it's especially not easy to move around with once you're already in there, people kind of look at you and they go, Oh, you're in post-production because you want to be in post-production. And they never really ask you whether you actually wanted that or not. Um, and so I, I really had no idea how to move forward. And it wasn't just because I wasn't, it just, I didn't know what to do. Um, and very fortunately, I remember Amy Berg made a, a post somewhere on Facebook or something that she was looking for an assistant. And it happened. It's just so happened that that was right at that time. And I remember reaching out to her and just saying, Hey, I, I'm interested, you know, in, uh, applying for this position. And she, I didn't hear back from her for a little bit and I just figured, okay, I guess like, you know, that's not happening. Uh, and then one day she messages me and she just goes, Hey, like I'm hosting interviews in the next few days. I would like you to come in. And I said, okay. And I remember like, I already knew Amy, you know, so it wasn't like this was just somebody I'd never met before, but 
I, I knew Amy in the capacity that like I had been in post-production and she'd been in the writer's room and I had made a, a point to interact with the writers when I was working on Eureka. Um, and so I knew her a little bit, but we were really more acquaintances. Um, and I went in and I interviewed with her and we just like totally hit it off like a hundred percent. And I walked out of that interview just going like, I would be shocked if I didn't get this job. Um, That's a good feeling. Isn't and it? it's a, it's a good feeling that I have been fortunate to have had a few times in my career. <laughs> uh, you know, and I've also had plenty of the, Oh, definitely didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it happens. Uh, but yeah. Um, and that night she called me and, you know, I had, I had told her about the heart condition and all this stuff. And, you know, I remember her calling me and just saying like, you sure about this? And then me being like, yeah. And her being like, all right, let's do it. And that was it. And I went into work the next day and I told my boss, you know, I was like, Hey, I am leaving. And I know that's shitty because the show's not over yet. We were pretty close to being done with it. Probably like a few weeks more. Um, but they were supportive, and uh, I think I stayed a, a, a week longer or something than I was planning on. Um, and uh, and then I joined Amy, and uh, that was a, a interesting roller coaster uh, for the next for the next couple of years, um, which I'm happy to just go into if you'd like me to just go into it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, so with Amy. It was um, it was a little it was a little different. There, there's just you know in advance. There's some stuff that I, I, I think probably I can't really talk about because under NDAs and things like that at the time. But uh, that was a very different sort of experience for me. And I had come out of post production with my own personal experience of um, writing scripts. You know, with my writing partner, I had done some film competitions um, where I'd won some accolades. Um, for stuff I wrote and directed. Um, I was still in a place of, do I want to write? Do I want to direct? What are the things I want to do? Um, and I remember that director from Eureka kind of reaching out to me and going like, hey, you know, I know you've taken a job with Amy um, and that's cool. <clears throat> you know, like if you're doing that, that means you're going on a writing path. And I just, you know, was like, yep, I, I think that's the path I'm, I'm interested in going on for now. And, uh, and so I, I took that gig and I remember the very first thing we did and it was what the, the gig was actually for. We did a pilot for TNT. Um, and we did this, 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 uh, it was a bounty hunter pilot. I remember. And the lead role was played by, um, Gina Davis. And, uh, it also starred Scott Bakula as her ex-husband. <laughs> um, and we shot the thing in Portland and I just remember like, loving like i i loved sort of the premise for it i i loved sort of working with amy on it i got to um you know do a bunch of like ancillary writing and and sort of side writing stuff for it like i got to you know name a bunch of the shops and stuff that were in the show and i got to name a band in the show after my band from high school and that was called panda splatter um <laughs> and they made up stickers for it too. It was awesome. I still have it. And we, you know, I got to do a bunch of that stuff, but really more importantly, Amy really included me in the sort of um, revisions process when it came to, you know, like 
what the notes were that we were getting in, um, you know, and then turning to me for, you know, sort of writer's room sessions of like, okay, well, this is what they're looking for. How can we tackle this? You know, and we worked together on a lot of that stuff, um, figuring out what we wanted to do with it. And then she would go, you know, she'd make the revisions and then we'd, uh, you know, we'd, we'd go to set and we'd film all the rest of it. And, um, and we worked with a company called Electric Entertainment that's run by a guy named Dean Devlin, who mm-hmm. may be a familiar name because he's, he's worked Independence in... Day and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah Independence Day. And, he's worked the, with the, the librarians on TNT. The librarians, yeah, and The yeah. Patriot, and a bunch of really famous stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, you know, we did a lot of work out of their studio in Los Angeles, and then we did a lot of work, you know, when we were shooting the thing in Portland. Um and we did all this, right? And uh, eventually, and I actually don't really remember how long this was, but it wasn't that long. It was like a few months because it's just a pilot. Um, and I remember we we did all this, and then uh, the show didn't go. TNT didn't go for it, and we we recut it entirely. We like we made a whole second bid to like no, let us let us go in and do something more with it. We'll make it feel really different. And TNT said, okay. And we did. And then they still didn't really go for it. And that was, uh, that was a real bummer because I think we were all really excited about it. And, um, you know, I had a couple moments on that show too, that I can, I can sort of talk about that. I remember thinking, I remember being a little starstruck um, on there was, I was a big quantum leap fan. Oh yeah. And, you know, like I had watched a lot of Quantum Leap long before I ever had this job. Um, and so I was really big into Scott Bakula. And I also knew Scott Bakula because my dad had worked on uh, Star Trek Enterprise, you mm-hmm. know, that Scott Bakula starred on. Right. Um, and uh, I just remember one day driving my car to set and getting a phone call from a number I didn't know and just answering it and hearing and going hello and hearing, hey, Adam, Scott. And I'm like, uh, Scott? Yeah, Scott Bakula, how you doing? And he's just going, oh, yeah, good, man. It's all, all good. What's going on, man? <laughs> you know, and then just sort of chatting with him for a little bit. And he was looking for, you know, information for the what we were doing that day. But, you know, I just remember being so like, wow, this what an interesting industry to just chat with celebrities. Like, it's no big deal. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and it wasn't like, I'm not somebody who gets starstruck because I've been in and around the industry my whole life. Um, you know, but when there are people that I really admire, uh, it's, it's a different story. Um, you know, and I got to meet a lot of people on like Eureka and Alphas as well, like, um, uh, Mahershala Ali and Felicia Day and, um, Will Wheaton and, um, uh, you know, just all, all these people that were like really great but that didn't mean a, a lot to me personally. Sure. Um, you know, and, and so meeting somebody like Scott Bakula is really amazing. Uh, and then one other funny anecdote that I have, and hopefully I don't get in trouble for telling this one. Um, one of the things that I used to do while we were prepping for that bounty hunter pilot was uh, when we were doing casting sessions and stuff, you know, we needed Gina to be there. And uh, so I would go pick Gina up from her house and drive her to the casting session. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember picking Gina up, taking her to the casting session. I did it. It was fine. Gina is like a really interesting person. Like she is incredibly fucking brilliant and 
so smart and in her head that she's a little weird <laughs> to talk to in general. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's just because she's on like a whole other level. Right. Um, and I remember we get in my car for me to drive her home and she just goes, she gets in the passenger seat and she goes, you know, Hey, I am a, I'm a little tired. So I'm going to take this jacket that I have and I'm going to put it over my head and I'm just going to sleep the rest of the car ride. And you just let me know we're at my place. And I go, okay, sounds good. And she proceeds to take the jacket, slink down as far in the passenger seat as she can, almost like, you know, to to have her head below the window so you can't (laughs) see her, which is a pretty big feat for somebody like Gina Davis in a Prius. Sure. And, uh, she does this and we're, we're driving. And I just remember every single time I got to a point where I had to make a turn, mm-hmm. you know, or get on a freeway or something. I just hear from under the blanket, turn here, turn there, turn here. And I go, <laughs> how, how is she doing this? She can't even see it right now. She's under this blanket. And she said she was going to sleep. She guided me the whole way back like that. And then at the end of it, gets out of the car and leaves. And I thought to myself, what was that? Why did that just happen? <laughs> and I, it's the only thing that I could think was that probably, you know, Gina Davis, you know, in her prime did not want to be seen driving around in some random, you know, 21-year-old Prius <laughs> with this just random guy. Right. Um, you know, so and have the tabloids go, what's going on here? Right. right. You know, so it, it was it was funny. It was interesting. Um, but, yeah, we uh, we we that pilot ended up not going. And that was a real bummer. Um, and we ended up sort of sticking around with uh, electric entertainment for a little bit in case there were other potential projects. Um, but, you know, Amy turned to me and she goes, listen, I know the pilot didn't go. Um, and you know, the pilot was paying you and all this stuff. She goes, but like, I'd really like you to stay as my assistant. Like, I think we, we work really well together. Um, she's like, I see a lot of potential for you. I want to help you get scripts of your own in the future. And, you know, all these, all these sorts of like promises and things. And, um, we, uh, and I I said, okay, because you know, what else was I going to do at the time? Like this was the prospect that I had and, uh, Amy was well-known and, um, you know, at that time she was good to me and I wanted to support her and I wanted to see what was uh, going to happen in the future with her. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we ended up, um, staying as, uh, as partners and I ended up really being more of a kind of creative partner to her, uh, for whatever it was that she needed. And we ended up, um, making a deal with, uh, Felicia and Geek and Sundry, um, in which we were going to work on a project called Caper. Um, and Caper was the sort of um, brainchild of a guy named uh, Mike Sizemore, who is a writer out of the UK, um, and just one of the like most wonderful people that I have ever met in my life. Um, just super, super nice, super sweet, loves film, you know, loves TV, like just, he, he's, he's just, he is who he is. Um, and he's, nothing he isn't and it, he's just wonderful um and amy and him started developing it um together and geek and sundry was interested in it because they were really trying to get their original programming going especially in like a, in a more narrative capacity um and so we 
we met with them a few times. We made a deal and they ended up giving us a hundred thousand dollars to make nine episodes of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what caper was, was actually, um, pretty cool at the time. I thought, uh, it was a half live action, half motion comic, uh, show about a bunch of superheroes, um, in their, in their sort of like twenties, um, living together in a loft in LA um, because they didn't have real jobs and they couldn't really afford anything else. Uh, and all the motion comics content was going to be them as their superhero versions, you know, running around fighting crime. But the main source of the content was going to be this sort of like sitcom, this live action sitcom of them living together and just dealing with their, the day to day stuff that went on with them. Um, and so we ended up, we ended up working on this thing for a little while and we shot all nine episodes of it. We got a bunch of people, um, you know, from throughout Amy's career to come help us on it too. Um, our, our main villain was played by just one of the absolutely most fucking wonderful, sorry, one of the most wonderful people uh, <laughs> in the world named Joel Gretsch, um, an actor who was, uh, I think the lead on the 4,400 mm-hmm. back in the day. Um uh, and has been in a million things. Uh, and he, uh, he and I are, are friends. I, I love Joel. Um, and, you know, we got him and we got um, Colin from Eureka to come in. And uh, we had, uh, I swear we had James, I think we had James Callis. We, we had a whole bunch of people like come on and do stuff with us um, for that, uh, for, for Caper. Uh, and it was, it was really, really great. And then Mike Sizemore's, um, one of his, his partners for a long time, his like creative partners for a long time, this guy named Dave Kennedy did all the art um, and everything and all the motion comic stuff. Uh, we put it together and it was like, it was fairly successful. I think we had like an audience of like 150,000 people or something on our first, in our first couple of days. Uh, and it premiered on YouTube and it premiered on Hulu um, and it was big. And, and the thing that was really exciting, exciting for me about it was um I got to co-produce it and I got to write and direct um, all the behind the scenes content as well. Um, I call it behind the scenes. It's really ancillary content because it was like, you know, we did little bits and pieces of shorts and things that went along with, with the the main uh, episodes. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. uh, And I co-produced it alongside um, this really talented producer named uh, Pete Dress and we, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from just the, the production in general um, because it was scrappy. You know, it was, they handed a, a few of us just a hundred thousand dollars and said, do your thing. Um, and I also, I also sort of ran a lot of the post-production side of it. Um, and, uh, and so I just learned a lot, you know, it was really like being thrown into the fire really quickly um, for this thing. And, and I, I did writer assistant duties on it, script coordinator duties, and I was in the room when we were developing the whole thing. So it was a big part of, of getting it there. Um, and it just was, I, I sort of became this kind of like jack of all trades of sorts in the industry, which was something that I, I kind of became known for when I would um, look around for other jobs and such. People would always look at me and go, hey, you know, what's really cool about you in this industry is you know, you've been a, a producer and a writer and a writer's assistant and a script coordinator and a PA and a coordinator and a supervisor. It was like, you've done all these stuff, all these things, you know, in, in different parts of the industry. 
Um, and that really was beneficial um, for me. And I, I, I don't really know how to give advice to anybody on that because that's not really a normal thing at all. Most people end up doing one thing for a really long time in the industry. Um, you know, but I was very fortunate uh, to have had that. Um, and so we did, we did caper and, uh, you know, we were working on like some pilots and some other stuff, you know, with different people and stuff had been going well, but nothing, nothing was like going, going at the moment. Um, and God, we worked on some really cool stuff while I was working with Amy. Uh, but the big thing that ended up happening next was, you know, um, Amy was getting to a point where she was going, I don't have a lot of money left to keep paying you. And I was feeling, uh, you know, not super thrilled about that and wondering what we were going to do next. And um, Amy ends up getting a gig uh, as a co-exec on um, uh, Da Vinci's Demons. Um, and she brought me on board as a script coordinator on that show. Um, and that was probably one of the most formative experiences that I had probably the most formative experience I had working in TV. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, it was my first professional show being in a writer's room. Um, and it was filled with talent, just like, I, I couldn't believe the talent that was in there. And um, all these people from different ways, people who had worked on, you know, X-Files and Breaking Bad and Lost and Alias and Orphan Black and um, um, Sons of Anarchy and all, all these, like, just this pedigree of talent in that room, um, you know, was incredible. And the, the most amazing thing that I learned working with that talent is that, like, even the people who are really talented and have those pedigrees don't hit home runs all the time, you right. know? And, and I... I had seen the world as, you know, oh, if they have that pedigree, they must be incredible and they must know what they're talking about. And that just wasn't the case. And that's not a knock to like the writers and producers that were in that room at all. That's actually, that's, that's me sort of respecting them now as a writer myself is, you know, like you don't, you don't hit a, a home run every single time you, you, do the best you can. And, you know, eventually you shape something into something amazing by working with talented people and being really open to, you know, idea, new ideas and not holding dearly to your own. And, you know, because I was a script coordinator, I got to see every draft of every script. Right. And because I was in the writer's room, I got to know exactly what they were talking about and how they got to those places and why. Um, and I got to work directly with each of the writers. Um, and I was tasked uh, by Amy, I was tasked alongside um, our writer's assistant at the time, um, this woman named uh, Andrea Basillo. Um, we worked together um, to write pretty much all of the outlines for all the episodes of the show. And <clears throat> we did all of them. Um, and we actually ended up writing a bunch of scenes across uh, the show as well, you know, independently of each other. Um, and by the time that that show was over, I really looked back on it and I went, uh, there's a lot of me in this show, like a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and it was such a bittersweet feeling because 
this is sort of the Hollywood game, right? Like you, you finally get your way into the place that you want to be in and everybody looks at you and they go, Hey, we want to give you these opportunities, but you're uncredited, right? Right. You, you write all this stuff, but nobody gives you the actual credit for it. Um, and I know that that I know that Da Vinci's Demons was filmed and edited and broadcast with a ton of content that I created and wrote. And, um, you know, my name is, is not anywhere on there as a, as a writer. Um, and what I was told was, Hey, you're doing such a great job. You are absolutely going to get a script next season. That's something we want to do for you. Um, they were going to allow me and, and Andrea to work together and have a script together. And we said, great, but, the prospects of the show getting a fourth season were very low and we all knew that. Um, and so we were sort of doing our best to create this really cool, big bombastic season, um, especially because the network had already brought us in. This was a brand new writer's room of brand new people. Um, and they brought us all in because they had let everybody else go from the previous season. So they wanted the show to have a different feel and take a different direction and try and give it some longevity. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Da Vinci's Demons, but it was, you know, all about uh, Leonardo Da Vinci running around doing mystical things. Um, and it, it felt, yeah, it, it, it tried to be Game of Thrones, essentially, <laughs> um, you know, but for, for stars. Uh, and it, it just never really got there. But it was, it was a good show, actually. And it was really, um, it was really, I think, well-received in Europe, especially. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, we, we, you know, I, Andrea and I were sort of promised this thing and then the show got canceled as happens. Right. And I kind of looked around and I just said, man, is this, is this really the, the game I want to play? Like at this point it was, <clears throat> it was 2014. It was nearing the end of 2014. And I had been working in film and TV since 2009 and you know, I, I simultaneously thought, well, I haven't been in the industry that long and I've been very fortunate and also thought, you know, as a young, eager kid, I thought, man, I just want to have what I want to have already. <laughs> um, you know, and, and a big piece of advice that I would have for people is a piece of advice that Amy gave me um, that I remember at the time scoffing at, uh, <laughs> but huh. it, it made a lot of sense. You know, she just kind of asked me like, you know, what, where, why are you in such a rush? Like, just relax, just calm down, um, you know, and, and I, that would, that would be a piece of advice that would come back into my mind when I was working in at Telltale and I'll get to that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just remember wanting it. I wanted it. I wanted a script, you know, I was working with my writing partner, Paul, and we were developing this, this script called Players that was basically Mad Men set in a video game studio and um, we based it on Telltale before either of us had ever worked there. Um, and it was scarily accurate actually, now that I have worked there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, we, we, I was doing, we were doing all this stuff. We were trying to get agents and we were trying to get the show like bots and simultaneously I'm working on this show and, and he's working on modern family and we're, we're doing all this stuff. And we're just, trying to move forward and this opportunity arises for me to work in video games a friend of mine um who was the head of, of pr at telltale you know he knew uh, a position at telltale and he thought that i would be good for it and he came to me and and told me to apply for it and 
I remember I went to one of our um, executive producers on Da Vinci's Demons, who I was super, super fond of, um, a guy named Jesse Alexander, who had worked on Lost and all this other stuff in the past, Heroes, Alias. Um, and, uh, and I remember going to him and just sort of telling him about the opportunity because he was into video games and we bonded over that. And he, I remember him looking at me and just saying, television is a dying industry. <laughs> And video games are the future, and you should absolutely take that opportunity. Um, and so I said, okay, and I applied, and I interviewed, and I didn't get this job. And I thought, all right, that's fine, you know, whatever. I I always wanted to get into video games at some point, but I never knew how I was going to get into it or what was going to happen. And it all seemed like something that if I could become a successful writer, I could get in, and this just wasn't the time. Um, and so Jesse reached back out to me and said, you know, hey, I know Da Vinci's is, is canceled. I've got another show I'm going on to. Would you like to come on to it with me? And I said, yeah. Um, and I started that show in the beginning of 2015. And that show was called um, Agent X. And it was super short-lived show on TNT um, that premise-wise, when I went on to it, they said, it's National Treasure meets James Bond. Hmm. And... I was like, yeah, I was like, that's kind of a cool premise. You know, it involved a secret agent working directly for the president and all these secret histories built in, you know, in the depths of, of like American revolutionary history and which is a big, big, big um, passionate point of mine. I'm super into history, especially American uh, revolutionary history. And, uh, and so this seemed really cool. I went onto the show and it was being run by, um, don't remember his whole name, a guy named Blake, who was uh, a, for a very long time a, a film writer. Um, I think he wrote The Born Identity and some other stuff. Uh, and this show was just a, a mess from the start. It didn't know what it wanted <laughs> to be. And TNT didn't really know what they wanted it to be. And eventually they turned it into a, just kind of a like cheap TV version of James Bond. And uh, you know, but for a more modern audience. Um, and we had a real, another, yet another really talented writer's room filled with super talented, amazing people. Um, but I just, I never really quite felt that show. And I, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure a lot of other people felt that show either. Um, but my, you know, the people I was working with in the writer's room were great. And um, the production company we were working with was great and filled with great people and everything. Uh, and then the another opportunity arose at Telltale again. Um, and this one was a much better opportunity than the first time. And I remember going back to Jesse and him going, like, do it, man. Like, again, go for it. And I went for it. And I ended up um, getting asked to come to Northern California to interview in person. Um, and the job was very weird. <laughs> it was the studio... Oh, I'm sorry about that. The studio had gone through some major changes. Um, Telltale had uh, released in 2012 the Walking Dead game to um, unprecedented acclaim. Um, it was it was either going to be their their death knell or their savior, right. and it ended up being their savior. Um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, just for people listening to this, video games um, 
have a, a the the game awards and the game awards is you know the the game industry's equivalent of the academy awards um but you know much much more uh much more about marketing <laughs> um but that was uh that was the show that 2012 Telltale won for their Walking Dead game. Hmm. They won the Game of the Year award. And indie studios did not win Game of the Year awards. That was not a thing. And so the fact that that happened was really big in the, in the industry because it sort of legitimized um, indie games as a, as, you know, on, on a level that they hadn't been legitimized on up to that point. Especially because indie games were um, often super sloppy, unfinished, uh, you know, or just done by unknown people and studios. And uh, that was, that was not the same as big AAA studios that would be your equivalents of your, you know, like your universals and, and your foxes and such. Right. Um, we're always the ones making games and winning awards. And so Telltale kind of set a precedent for the industry that didn't exist before that. Um, it's one of the reasons why Telltale's closure was such a big deal too, amidst the fact that there were a bunch of other closures of studios. Um, Telltale's really uh, stung because it was a story of, you know, unprecedented success. And then a period of how could this ever go wrong turned into, oh, this went wrong in the absolute worst of ways. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and so um, when I had this opportunity, like, Telltale was a really interesting, bittersweet thing in my mind because it was kind of a mecca for writers who wanted to work in video games. Um, but it was also a studio that made dated experiences. Um, and the, the games that it made were choose-your-own-adventure style games um, with, with content that was incredibly branched, depending on how you played the game. Um, and... Uh, but they were, it was built in a very old engine um, and it, the games moved at a snail's pace and they didn't have the bells and whistles and things that, that modern games had. And so they were really hard to play. And for somebody like me who um, grew up with ADD and really needs to be able to move around a lot when I'm playing video games and such, you know, this experience was a really, they were not easy games for me to get through. I'll, I'll put it that way. But <clears throat> from a narrative perspective, the stories that were being told in those games were incredible and they were on a whole other level. They were way beyond the types of stories video games had ever told. They were super personal. They were incredibly character based and they were really focused on, on this cinematic style of storytelling. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And so it was just what, what ended up happening was that the, the two main co-founders of the studio, um, uh, uh, Kevin Bruner and Dan Connors, um, they ended up, uh, Dan Connors ended up being CEO of the studio for a long time and Kevin was CTO and Dan ended up stepping down and Kevin took over as CEO and Kevin was looking for a creative partner, assistant, whatever you want to call it, to basically fill a role that Dan had filled. But Kevin wasn't looking for somebody who was on his level. He was looking, you know, for somebody to, to also be sort of an administrative assistant to him at the same time. Um, and so uh, when I went and interviewed for this job, it was just sort of nebulous as to what they were really looking for because they wanted somebody to give notes on, on creative content and be in places that Kevin couldn't be when he was somewhere else. And, 
you know, also somebody who could schedule a calendar. And right. I, I, you know, and I looked at the opportunity and I looked at where I was in TV and I, I genuinely felt like I was moving in a direction in television that like I was, I was confident that I could get where I wanted to go. I just didn't know how long it was going to take. And it could take, you know, months, it could take years, it could take decades. I didn't really know. And I wasn't really willing to sit around in L.A. traffic for another day, Right. um, you know, driving from from the valley over to to um, Culver City uh, for two hours. And I just kind of said, you know, I want this job. I want to move out of L.A. I want to get out of film and TV. I'm just not interested. And uh, I got offered the job and I took it. And, um, my, uh, my wife and I ended up moving up to Northern California and we joined up with Telltale and, um, you know, I took this job and this job, um, ended up putting me in a position where I was both doing administrative duties, like trying to build out facilities departments and doing, uh, scheduling and such while simultaneously being involved in, uh, all of our major milestone meetings, which, you know, what that essentially looks like is, um, you know, when a, on, on a specific project, let's say we're working on a Walking Dead game, um, <clears throat> throughout the process, there are multiple milestones. You know, there's the first time we play the game and, and experience it when it's, when it's in its roughest but built state, you know, and then there's like table reads and where we read the scripts through and, um, you know, then there's, our final playthroughs of the game and there's smaller milestone meetings to, to hit on specific points, you know, for the, for the experience that we really want to make sure are there. And I was involved in all that stuff, um, but I was involved in it on an executive level and um, Telltale was not the most welcoming place. Uh, it had a lot of egos and a lot of clicks and it had a lot of um, people who uh, sort of wanted their ideas or front and center uh, and didn't really care as much about the ideas of, of their peers. Um, and that's not everybody. There were a lot of people there who were not that, who were genuine, genuinely good collaborators who were trying to build a lot of um, really amazing narrative experiences as well. Uh, but because I was on an executive side of it, you know, I had some people who looked at me as, well, here's some executive schlub from, television who's coming in trying to tell us how to write video games you know doesn't know right you know and then other people who are super willing to embrace me um and one of the big things that i did there was uh you know and, and kevin bruner himself told me this when i started the job was that you know communication be between him and other people at the studio was not um a, a very strong point for him it was not a strong suit of his and so he really needed somebody to come in and help sort of um, translate what he wanted uh, to the rest of the people at the studio. And um, Kevin, I, I'm not going to speak too much to this, but um, Kevin very famously, if you follow Telltale Saga up to this point, um, Kevin very famously is um, sort of pegged and blamed for um, the studio's failure and for creating an incredibly toxic environment at the studio. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll say that Kevin was nothing but um, sweet and nice and helpful to me um, and really appreciated me and liked me. Uh, but I also worked with Kevin in multiple capacities 
And as, as an assistant to Kevin, um, that was a fine job as a creative working under Kevin, that could be a nightmare at times. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was, it was a very interesting job and eventually, um, I was asked to step into a role, uh, as a associate creative director, um, on, uh, walking dead season three. And, um, I didn't, I didn't ask for this role, uh, but it was, it was an opportunity and it was an opportunity that I took knowing that it was going to ruffle some feathers. Uh, but I was placed directly onto creative content. And so I started working with the team, you know, and I had a lot of people looking at me and going like, we know you want to be a writer, you know, what, like professionally, we know you want your name up there. Like, why, why are you not just writing here? You know, one of the big things for me is that I don't like to just walk into a place and tell people what to do at at any point. And uh, when I got into video games, I, I, I mean, you know, you can, say I've played video games my whole life, but you, it's another thing to like actually make video games. Right. Um, and so I wanted to just sort of sit in the back and absorb and listen and watch and really understand how this stuff worked. And that's not to say that I didn't speak my mind at different times because, you know, I did have a knowledge of how to build narrative. Um, but I really wanted to learn how to build narrative video games especially branching ones. Um, so I spent a lot of time just kind of like observing and, and absorbing. And when I started doing the associate creative director job, you know, this was a leadership position and it was one that was sort of created for me. And Amy's advice came back into my head at a certain point, you know, like, why are you, why are you so eager? You need to just relax and chill out. Because when I took that job, I thought, Oh, I got this no problem. I get how the studio works now. I've been here for a year. You know, I worked in TV for six, seven years. Like I know this stuff. Like I'm, I'm at a good point in my career to be able to do this. And Kevin, I was so, so wrong (laughs) (laughs) because like, this is a hefty leadership position and it doesn't just mean, you know, that you walk in and you go, Oh, I know how narrative works or how to build interesting characters. It, it, It means you know, you're helping manage your peers and you're managing content and you're managing expectations from executives and the board of directors and and our marketing people and all this different stuff. And um, I I think it was maybe one of the most valuable experiences I've ever had in my career because I looked around and I said, oh my God, I'm not ready for this. (laughs) I'm not ready for a leadership position. Right. Um, And I became super, super depressed, like super stressed and depressed on this project. Um, because I saw that I, I knew where the studio was financially, um, telltale games historically. And I, I think that I can speak to this, but, uh, I don't think this is anything people don't already know, but telltale games historically did not make a lot of money. Um, and we put a lot of money into them and the studio wanted to keep up with expectations, right? We wanted to be a studio that was never not putting content out. And so that meant that we had to have like three, four or five projects going at any time, but we didn't want those projects to just be IPs that people didn't know because we assumed, you know, Oh, we can keep putting out fables, you know, games like Wolf Among Us, but who's going to know that? So why don't we get Batman or guardians of the galaxy or these big name things people knew. Right. 
but the audiences that that liked the, that content was not the same audience that wanted to play the video game versions of them necessarily um and we stretched ourselves out real thin because we were also on like every single platform um you know so we were building experiences that needed to be optimized for different platforms which took a lot of studio resources and we did not ever put an emphasis on QA and making sure that our games were not bug filled and I mean it was just we were focused in all the wrong places and and we all knew it and the powers that be were not they had visions and they were not willing to um push us in in evolving directions unfortunately right um so the mixture the combination of that and me feeling not ready in my career for the job that I was doing really got me down um, emotionally. And I made some enemies at the studio amongst my friends. And it just, you know, which was not a unique thing to me. It was just a studio thing in general, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, the atmosphere was super toxic. It was really competitive. And I actually think that that studio is filled with a lot of talented people who were made worse by being at that studio, mm. um, myself included. Um, and that's not to say that we didn't learn a lot from there, or have accolades from there, or enjoy our time at different times. I mean, that studio was was an indie studio that was in the process of becoming something much bigger. And I think when I joined, there was like 400 people or something. And when it had won the award for Walking Dead, I think it was like 100 people. So it had it had gotten really big really fast. Um, and uh, I remember working uh, with our lead writer, um, guy named Brad Kane, and him going you know, look, like you want to write, you don't want to do the associate creative director thing. Let's just put you in there. Let's just do it. And like, you know, if you're no good, you're no good. And I'm, I'm like, okay, sure. And, um, we really needed the writing support. And I started writing some scenes, um, for content that we were already building. And my work was really well liked, um, by the team and, by our exec and um i looked at them and i said i don't want to do the associate creative director thing anymore i'm not ready for it um i just want to head down be a writer um, at the studio and uh they said okay and so i i wrote a bunch of content on walking dead season three and then i ended up um being put onto our minecraft game as a lead episode lead writer that's great um, and I, yeah, and I led the finale episode for our the, the second season of Minecraft. Um, and I wrote on every other episode in that as well. Uh, and so I, I did a ton of work. I think by the time that I had, by the time that I got laid off at Telltale, I had shipped, you know, two seasons worth of content um, as, as a, like a hands-on creative, not to mention, you know, all the other work that I had done on the rest of our projects like Borderlands and um, Game of Thrones and, uh, all the rest of it. Um, and I had already, by that time, I'd already sort of been looking for a way out. Like I knew where the studio was at. Most of my peers who I had, um, come up with that, that studio had left. It was, it was a very different feeling and looking place. And, um, Kevin Bruner had, uh, had been, um, uh, taken, taken off of his position and taken away from the studio. Um, and so we had a lot of changes and the studio was just in my mind heading towards closure at a certain point. And, uh, so I started talking to Bungie. I was very fortunate to 
make a connection and start talking to Bungie. Um, and they had been looking for somebody for some, for a few positions and they weren't positions that I was really interested in. And I told them, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to just be hands-on writing. So if that's something you guys are looking for, you let me know. And they said, definitely. We think we're going to have some of those positions opening up at some point soon. It just so happened that like that was right at the same time that I got laid off from Telltale. Um, and, uh, you know, I got laid off in the first major layoffs at Telltale. 90 of us um, uh, got laid off for various different reasons. And um, we, the studio, as far as I knew, was um, very close to closure. Uh, and so they, if they hadn't let us all, the 90 of us go, I think the studio would have had to close down like the next month or so, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a big deal. Um, and so it was a, a blessing in disguise, to be honest, because like I then um, had an interview with uh, my old boss, at, my old Bungie boss, and we just hit it off because I had this I don't care mentality at that point. Like I just I knew what I had done. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I was good at, and what I wasn't good at. And I remember just talking to him. And I remember the day I, I talked to him was the same day that my Minecraft episode released and I was looking at the positive and negative reviews for it. Right. And I remember just picking up the phone with him and he was like, how you doing, man? And I'm like, not great, dude. And he's like, why? I'm like looking at my reviews for my episode of Minecraft, you know? And he's like, ah, it's the worst, isn't it? And I was like, it's the worst. And we just hit it off over the mutual dislike of looking at reviews for your content. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, and and that just blossomed, and I ended up getting offered the job at Bungie to come and be a senior writer. Um, and that was uh, what was that? That was the beginning of 2018, I want to say. Yeah, because I started at Bungie in March of 2018. Um, and then, because I know we're we're running low on time, um, you know, I I I came to Bungie, and um, since I've been at Bungie, I have shipped um four projects and i'm working on a a fifth um but i've shipped four expansions for destiny two um and the first of which i did um as as just a a senior writer at the studio and then the other ones i've done uh as sort of uh writing lead positions um and it's been an incredibly rewarding experience and bungie is an amazing studio and I absolutely love working there. But from my explanation of how I got here, you can clearly see this is entirely non-traditional. Right. That I did not, I did, I did nothing that you would give advice to somebody to, um, to, to actually and uh, end up where I am today. So. But I think we could you know, totally a, grab a, a pretty common theme in that, like when people say do I have to move to Los Angeles for television and film or right. just get a job, any job within the industry you want to work in, even if it's not your dream job, because oftentimes they hire from within, you can meet the different people. If you're well-liked and you do a good job, you can transfer, you can move to a different position, but you sort of have right. to be there, or at least it makes it substantially easier to be there in that industry you want to work in or in an ancillary industry, I guess in your case, from film and TV to video right. games to get a job rather than, you know, sending a cold resume kind of thing, being yeah. within that industry already 
helps. So what? Yeah, I, I mean, you're you're right. Yeah, no, sorry. I mean, it, like, I mean, it's it's all about who you know. Yeah. <laughs> I like got to be honest. You know, like you, it, it's also all about you know your work ethic and your experience. Sure. But that's not going to go anywhere unless like you know you've made friends and you know people and you've connected with them. So right. Now, I know we're short you know, on time but, for this episode, yeah. but I wanted to ask you, because we get asked a lot, just one last que- question. Yeah. In terms of somebody who didn't necessarily want to work in film and television and, and follow the path that you have laid out, although I'm not sure that that path is, that path is unique to you, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but if somebody sure. wanted to venture into video game writing, they wanted to write for video games, what kind of samples yeah. would they need? You know, who would they approach with it? I mean, I, I don't know of right. agents and managers working, you know, representing video game writers other than IPs and things like that, but like trying to get them jobs at a studio. I could be wrong. Um, but so what kind of samples should a writer who wants to work in video games put together and who would they approach with their samples, with their resume, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, well, I mean, to, to speak to what you said about agents and stuff, actually, that is a thing now. Um, oh, great. Plenty of the agencies have video game divisions and stuff and are looking for a lot of talent these days. Writer, video game writer is still a sort of nebulous title and it still is comprised of not that many of us in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Sure. Um, narrative designer and writer are kind of these sort of interchangeable, depending on who you speak to, um, titles. Uh, Narrative designer just implies a lot more. You know, I'll, I'll say this real quick. Video game writing is not just writing. Like, you know, working in TV or film, like you're, you know, as a writer, you're often writing or ideating, right? Those are like your main, those are your main jobs. And then often you're sort of supervising that writing and such when you're on set. Um, but for the most part, everybody else has their jobs and they do their jobs and you don't have to worry about the rest of that. But video game writing is not just writing because you're also creating a player-driven experience. Mm-hmm. And so you, you need to understand game design and you especially need to understand narrative design. And that is a term that I'm not sure um, a lot of people just get right off the bat, uh, especially if you're not familiar with the, the video game um, creating process. But I think that the best way that I could describe it is that um, narrative design is thinking about what the player experience is going to be like as they move through the game and experience the game's narrative. Um, And so what that can look like, right. When you're, when you're writing a script in TV, you're just, you know, you're writing a lot of dialogue and such, but when you're, when you're working on a game um, in my, in my position as a narrative designer, you're thinking about everything, right? Like what is, what is the, what is the player's, um, campaign crit path narrative experience going to feel like? What is their experience going to feel like walking around this map in different parts of the map? What is the what do the environments look like, and what do they feel like, and what what sort of storytelling channels do we have within those places? You know, can we leave bones on the ground and and start to drop hints of a story involving you know maybe people died in this part of the map and. How does that tie into the larger picture? There's a ton of world building that we have to do as well, um, you know, for, for the world of our game, a lot of history. And, and then we have to figure out ways to trickle that history to the player without overwhelming them, you know, or making them feel like, oh, I'm playing a video game. Why do I want to read or learn, you know, all these things? You, you, you also have to think about how do, we, how do we deliver the narrative in subtle ways, um, you know, and so 
um, being a narrative, being a good narrative designer is really about looking at your entire palette and, and saying, and, and, and sort of logging all the different ways that you have to tell a story. You know, we have something in games called uh, strings. And what strings are is all visual written content in a game. So, you know, like menu, um, menu text, and we have stuff called incident text, which is something that pops up as you're playing the game. Like if you, you know, if you kill an enemy and they give, and, and that killing that enemy gives you a power, you know, you'll have a little thing that pops up in the corner that says, you know, you've acquired this power or something of that sort. Um, and all enemies in our game have names, you know, above their heads and, these are all storytelling channels. You know, these are all ways for us to give titles to things or names to things, or even go a little meta and speak to the player through these channels, you know, in narrative ways that we would not normally use them for. And so being a narrative designer is, is really about just looking at an entire experience and thinking about how is the music going to affect the, the player? How is the tone going to affect the player? How's the character going to affect it? the world around them, the environment, all, all of it, it, it all uh, matters. And it's all part of the purview of being a narrative designer. So it's like a, it's a, it's a very engaging job, but, but my advice to, to people would be not just to do writing samples, because, you know, when you say what types of writing examples should somebody do, I mean, write whatever you want, like writing samples or writing samples, you know, it's always probably good to have, you know, some, uh, some linear samples, like some, some television script format stuff or film script format stuff or, um, you know, prose or whatever it is, but it's also really good. Um, you know, there are resources on online that are free, like twine is a, uh, a video game engine. that's all about branching content and it's available to people and, you know, get on, get, get on there, like get on twine and start making a game, like, you know, make a narrative experience there. Um, or, you know, if you're, if you're a young aspiring writer, um, get engaged with the, with the, and you want to be in video games, get engaged with the video game community, the indie community, you know, go, go to conventions, meet indie developers and talk to them about who you are and give them your, you know, give them samples and things because tons of indie games are being made all the time. And they're often being made by people who are, they have a really cool game idea, but they may not be storytellers or they may not be writers and they need somebody to come in and, you know, give that, um, uh, uh, provide that sort of um, piece of the puzzle for them. Um, and so I know a lot of um, up and coming and aspiring video game writers who are trying to make their way by just taking small indie, uh, indie contracts and, and um, you know, writing small stories and stuff for indie games. So that, that's probably a good way to get, get there, you know, engage with the community and and I would also say, like, don't feel don't feel hesitant to reach out to us as well. Like, I'm I'm a busy person and I have a lot of stuff going on, but I do get LinkedIn messages from people, you know, or I get DMs on Twitter and stuff from from aspiring people who have not done anything yet, but they really want to, and they, you know, they reach out and they just say, hey, I'd love to just like talk to you for a little bit. And I often like try to do at least two or three of those a year and just talk to people and tell them my trajectory and explain to them how they can get in and stuff. And Bungie does its due diligence. We'll bring high school students and such in um, to the studio as well. And that are aspiring game developers and, you know, talk to them about what it's like and try and push them forward. And um, so I, I would just say like, you know, there, there are a lot of avenues for, for that these days. Um, and also school, like, 
I, I went to University of Santa Cruz in California, and they have an extensive video game program now that they didn't have when I was there. Mm. But you know, plenty of plenty of uh, universities and stuff are have they they're starting to have um, you know game programs and such because it is a it's a big big uh, industry and everybody wants to get in in some regard. Um, and then I think the other way that I would say is like, you know, being a tester, being in QA for video games, like those are easy entry level positions that you can often get into games with without having to have prior game experience. Right. And, and QA like, is quality assurance or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the people who are constantly testing our games, which like, you know, to give a shout out to QA because QA often sort of gets left in the dust because people think that they're not that important, but that's not, I mean, there may, there may be like the most important department because like our games go out into the world. And if, if people don't do QA for them, they can end up being disastrous experiences, right. you know? And so our QA people end up um, being the people who, who are really guardians for our games essentially. And not to mention that like our game testers and such that we have, like at Bungie, we like they're super involved and vocal about like how our games are moving and what our experiences are like, and they're often super talented people who who are passionate and know what they're talking about, and you know they're they're testers, so they're designed to just be there to test the game and and such. But like they're so close to us that like that's a really easy way for us to go. Hey, this person seems to have these talents or this eye for this. Like this might be a person who's better off as a narrative designer here. Um, you know, and, and then it's a, those are easy positions to, to jump from one thing to another. And, um, so there's, there's like a million different ways to get in, write, write, whatever you write, write your fan fiction or not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, but just, you know, take those different avenues. And I would say, try and hit all of them, (laughs) which is exhausting sounding, but you know, if you want it, you, you gotta go for it. Adam Miller. Thank you. Adam's, Thank you. Adam's Twitter. Follow him at Desmondia. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D-I-A. It's not Desdemona from Othello, but Desmondia. <laughs> uh, again, thank you, Adam, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Word. And as always, thank you guys for listening. We make the podcast for you. Without you, there's no show. And again, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating. That's the last time I'll mention it. Until next time. Uh, thank you again, and keep writing. We'll see you next time.